We're turning to Hebrews chapter 11, please. The 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. And keep your Bible open there. We'll be turning to another scripture in a moment or two. Great Hebrews 11. And just keeping the scriptures open at that chapter. As we continue with this, our fourth message entitled, Surviving the Sifting, I just want to remind you that there are two sources where the sifting in the believer's life comes from. Sometimes it's God that does it. Sometimes it's God that does the shaking and the sifting along the road of life in our individual and family lives. And sometimes it's Satan. God does it to sift out the dross, the chaff, the leaven, to purify us, to cleanse us. And the devil, he does it for the opposite reason. He does it to take away that which is pure and clean and wholesome and holy in our life. But there are many times, like in the story of Job in the Old Testament and Peter in the New Testament, that both, both, the Lord and the devil are at work at the same time. And it's very interesting when you study the Scriptures and you discover that. But all the time the sovereign hand of God is holding both sieves. And the devil only can shake and rattle and tempt as much as the Lord allows him to do. And the intensity of the sifting and the amount of the sifting is in the hand of God. And he knows when to stop it. He knows when to start it. He knows how to slow it down. And he knows exactly what to do. You know that from the book of Job that the, the Lord spoke directly to Satan in the book of Job. And he said to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? And then he gave him permission to touch everything that he had apart from touching his life. And once he got that permission, all the gates of, the gates of hell were opened up upon Job and, and upon his family. It was the same with Peter in the New Testament. He said to Peter, The Lord said, Simon, Simon Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. And that's very interesting and very noticeable because the Lord had prayed for him before, before he went into the sifting that Peter went into. Now I can say to you, I'll pray for you during the week, but I don't know what to pray for you for. 
But the Lord knows what's coming your way during the week. And he knows what sifting will come and what trials will come and what pressures will come. He knows all about it. And it's wonderful to know that he can say, I have prayed for you. He has already done the praying. For he knows all things and what's going to happen. We always need to remember in all these siftings that we are enriched in all things. That we verse came to me this morning, Ephesians 1 and verse 5, that we're enriched in everything. You think of that tonight. You can say there's things in my life, and boy, I tell you, I haven't been enriched much by it. Well, the Word of God says we're enriched in all things, and all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. He knows the way that we take, and when he has tried us, we shall come forth as gold. So it's all in his sovereign, eternal hand. It's how we deal with it is the problem. Now, it's interesting to note as we study, and as I've been studying the siftings in the Bible, that a lot of it was in families. Quite a lot of it was in families. For instance, you have two brothers, Cain and Abel. Well, Abel survived the sifting, but Cain didn't survive it. He ended up wandering. Then there was Jacob and Esau. Jacob survived the sifting, but Esau didn't. He ended up weeping. Then there's the man and the wife. There's Lot Lot and his wife. You know that Lot got out of Sodom, but it just was with the skin of his teeth and the smell of smoke upon him. I don't want to get into heaven that way. But he got out of Sodom with the smell of smoke on him and the accusations of his sons-in-laws ringing in his ears. But he got out. By the grace of God, he may have lingered, but he got out, but his wife turned back and she didn't survive it. And then you go on, of course, through other scriptures and you'll find that the the father and son, King David, he slipped and he fell and he stumbled and he wobbled, but he made it at the end of the day. But Solomon, his son Solomon ended up atrociously. He ended up badly. He did not survive the siftings. And then you have two uh, sisters-in-law, Ruth and Orpha. Both of them, when they heard the news that there was bread in the land and went with Naomi, both of them said, we shall go, we shall go, we will return with thee. And we know that Orpha turned back. She didn't survive it. And Ruth went on in. And then you have two preachers, Paul and Silas. Many are the preachers and many will be the preachers who will not survive the sifting that's coming upon our land if the Lord doesn't revive us. Raven Hell David has a a message, he preached it here from this pulpit, surviving the anointing. And I think he told us about 80% of preachers in America do not survive the anointing of God in their lives. They end up badly. That's a terrible tragedy. Terrible, terrible statistic. But many preachers do not survive. They will not survive the sifting that's coming. Paul survived it, but demons didn't. Now last week we, in the last two weeks was it, we dealt with sexual siftings. 
And for the next two weeks, we're going to deal with parental siftings. Parental siftings. And I can tell you that that is a big story, both in the Bible and outside the Bible. There are many parents and grandparents tonight, and they're reeling and shaking and shamed by the carry-on and the activities of their children. In fact, some of them have been driven to an early grave. And many, many pastors with young families have been driven out of the ministry because of their families. So the parental siftings is very real and very real indeed. Now, there's something else that I noticed when I was studying these scriptures. And all those who survived the siftings were men and women of faith. Men and women of faith. And many of them are found in Hebrews chapter 11. Not all of them. But many of them are found in Hebrews chapter 11. Well, Hebrews 11 tells us without faith it's impossible to please God. I wonder how your faith is tonight. And I wonder how my faith is tonight. So that's why we're opened here, and I'll show you in a minute why we're opened at Hebrews 11. If you look at verse 4 of Hebrews 11, you'll see by faith Abel. And then verse 5, by faith Enoch. And there in verse 7, by faith Noah. Then verse 8, by faith Abraham. Verse 11, by faith Sarah. And when you think of the siftings that these people went through, verse 20, by faith Isaac. 21, by faith Jacob. 22, by faith Joseph. 23, by faith Moses. Moses. No sign of Aaron there. There's no sign of Miriam there. But the father and mother is there. You notice that? Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. I wonder, did Aaron not survive the sifting? The last we read of him, he was stripped of his garments and he was buried, and he was buried in the mountain. The last we read of Miriam, she died and was buried at Kadesh Barnea, although they came out of Egypt and never got over. That's worth thinking about. Because families can be divided in the siftings. Family can be divided with the siftings. That may be the case, I don't know, I'm just throwing that out you tonight. Look at verse 32 of Hebrews 11. And what shall I more say for the time would fail me to tell. Now there's six names here and they're all in the book of Judges. Time would not tell me to, to, to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jeshua. Well David's not in the Judges, but David and Samuel they're not in the judges, all of them, but they're referring to the, to, to the time of, of the judges. 
Verse 30, verse, verse 33 says this, Through faith subdued kingdoms. That was Moses. I think they're referring to Moses there. He subdued the kingdoms and wrought righteousness and obtained promises. And then you read on after that, you have Daniel, who stopped the mouths of lions. Verse 34, the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace that quenched the violence of, of fire escaped the edge of the sword, David running from Saul. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, and turned to fight the armies of Eli. All of them survived the siftings. Now here's what we're after tonight in verse 35. This is our text for tonight. Women received their dead raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better, a better resurrection. What an awesome, mighty people these were. Now I want you to look at verse 35, the first part of it. Women received their dead raised to life again. Here we have what I would say is the ultimate trial and sifting that had come on any family, and that is death. Death. And whether it's physical death or whether it's spiritual death, they're both awful deaths. And don't minimize the spiritual death. Sometimes we minimize the spiritual death that, we're, that our boys and our girls and our children are dead in trespass and in sin. Now we all fear and we all dread the fact that we might bury some of our children and some in this meeting know what I'm talking about. But let me say to you tonight, don't forget, don't forget if that child and that person is saved, that one day you're going to see them again. And like David, he, he will not come to me, but I will go to him and thank God for that. And that's why we need to pray that they'll get saved with all our heart. To think that they would die without being saved, still dead in trespass and in sins, and so often we lay so much emphasis and fear on their physical death and care little about their spiritual death, which forever will be in hell and in the lake of fire. Think about that. Think about it. Here we have a text which says, women received their dead raised to life again. Now, I know it's referring not to the Old Testament because that's the context of it, which we will turn to in a moment. But you know, there were many in the Scripture women who received, who received their dead raised to life again. Well, for instance, Mary and Martha received their dead brother to life again. As the text says, women received their dead raised to life again. Don't take children here, but I know that that's what it's referring to, and I'll show you in a moment. Mary and Martha received their dead brother back to life again. Jairus' wife received her dead daughter back to life again. And when we're preaching on that story about Jairus, so often we only think of Jairus 
and Peter, James, and John that went into the house. But remember, Jairus' mother was in the house too. Funny how we miss things in Scripture. And I would say whenever the Lord raised Jairus' daughter up to life, and he said, get her something to eat, I would say it would have been the mother that would have got her something to eat. And just a wee word to you parents tonight that have children dead and trespass and in sin, you look after them the best you can till you get them saved. Cook their meals for them, make their beds for them, pack their lunches for them, and pray for them. That they might come to know the Lord. And then there was the widow of Nain, son. She received him back to life again. You know, all three, all three in the, New Ten, the Gospels that were raised from the dead were all raised through prayer. The two in the Old Testament that we're going to look at in a moment were raised through prayer. The two that were raised in the Acts of the Apostles, Dorcas and Eutychus, were raised through prayer. That's a study on its own. The dead were raised through prayer. That's why we emphasize the power of prayer here in these meetings. That's why we are going to pray tonight. Because God can raise dead sinners and bring them life. And we know that. And thank God for that. He didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. So don't forget that he is able to do it. Keeping this now in its, in, in its context, it's referring to the two women in 1 Kings, 7, 1 Kings, 2 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4. I want you to turn to 2 Kings 17. Or 2 Kings 4. Turn back with the 2 Kings 4. 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 4. But first, just, we'll just deal with this scripture tonight. 2 Kings chapter 4. And verse 8. Now this is going to be our Bible study tonight and next week. So I want to take our time. We're, we're following this text now in Hebrews. We're following this text in Hebrews where women received their dead, brought to life again. And this is a wonderful story. Of course, the one in 1 Kings 17 where Elijah lifted the woman, the woman with the widow uh, that fed with the bar. That was an, a wonderful story too, but there's great contrast in those stories if you look at them. One was a widow. The other here, this one here is a husband. One was poor. The other, this one here is wealthy woman. One Elijah supplied the need for Here this woman supplies Elisha's need. And there are many contrasts that are an interesting study. But we're at this one tonight, and we're 2 Kings 4, and we're at verse 8. 
And it fell on a day that Elijah passed to Shunem, where was a great woman. And she constrained him to eat bread, and so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God which passeth by us continually. Now let us stop there for a moment. This woman is called not only a great woman because of her wealth, and we know that we'll see that she was a wealthy woman, but we know also that she's a great woman because of her faith, because that's who the hatred to the Hebrews is referring to. And not only that, you will see that coming out of these verses very powerfully. This was a great woman of faith. But there are many other ways that she was great. I suggest to you tonight, and this is something I want you to think about, that there are four New Testament gifts that's required in the assembly of God's people today, and this woman had the four of them, and maybe more. Now let that sink in a minute. First of all, she had the gift of knowledge. She had the gift of wisdom. And she had the gift of discernment. We needn't turn to these scriptures, but listen to what I'm going to say. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 8 and in verse 10, we have the gift of knowledge. We have the gift of wisdom. And we have the gifts of discernment. And those are gifts that should be, are not operating too greatly in the church today, but they should be operating in the church, the New Testament church today. Now look at verse 9 here. She said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive. She had the gift of perception. I perceive that this is a holy man of God. That was a gift of knowledge that she had, a gift of perception, that she, a gift of discernment that this woman of Shunem had. She didn't say that he was just a man of God, but he was a holy man of God. Now, how did she discern that? Well, we know that she had been in her in her home time and time again before that, because she was in, if you read there, she was in the home, he was in the home before that time and time. She had constrained him to come in. She, she had kept asking him to come in to get hospitality as he passed by from the schools of the prophet. And she, she's able to say, I perceive that this is a holy man of God. Now, there's plenty of men of God, but there's not that many holy men of God. God has plenty of men, you know. But there's difference in men, and there's difference in women. She could discern that he was a holy man of God. wonder why that was. Was it because she saw him at the word? Was it because that she uh, heard him pray? Was it because of his actions? 
But she was satisfied enough to say to her husband, this is a holy man of God. Boy, it's wonderful to have a gift of discernment. We need a gift of discernment. As I know, I can be very easily fooled, and if it wasn't for my wife, for I tell you, she has a gift of discernment in areas that I haven't, only for her. I'd been in problems many times over the minister. Sometimes women have a perception that men haven't got. This woman had a perception, she says, this is a holy man of God we're dealing with here. Not a clever man. Not a man with a PhD. He's not a handsome man. He doesn't say he's a handsome man. Maybe he was. He's not a charming man. Certainly he wasn't. But he's a holy man. She's seen it in the home. That's the only conclusion you can make to this. She's seen it in the home. He was in and out, in and out, in and out. And it's in the home that matters. Not in the church. Not in the meetings. Not in the missions. Not in the street. She knew that he was a prophet before he came into her home. But once she, he was in the home, she could say then, this is a holy man of God. That's where the mask slips, you know, in the home. The wife will tell you. The husband will tell you. The children will tell you. Those that you work with, those that you're in close contact with, will know about your spirituality. They'll know when they have a conversation with you. They'll know what you want to talk about. They'll not be long in your presence to the know where you're coming from, as we say. Not only was this woman knowledgeable and wise and discerning, she was hospitable. And that's another gift, Romans 12 and verse 13. She was given to hospitality. Or as Paul says, she was a lover of hospitality. You know, I was very surprised when we put a hospitality book out there when we were flooded with 200 people on Sunday mornings or near it. There was only a half a dozen names went down into the hospitality book. Well, you see, hospitality is a gift that can be used for God. And I wonder how many of us would look around on a Sunday morning and say, there's a man now, and there's a woman, and, and there's a wee family. And we'll ask them to have their dinner. I remember the, Pat and I and the two girls, when I left the Baptist before I went out to, went to Woodford Fellowship. And it wasn't first Sunday we were in Woodford Fellowship, this, after the table was over, this businessman came over to us. He said, would you, would you like to come to us for that's well, not an easy thing for a woman to do but this woman here she had the gift of hospitality she, she constrained him to come in she, 
she, she wanted them to come in. You know, you, sometimes you ask somebody, oh, would, you, would you like to come up for your tea or would you like to come for your lunch? And you're sort of half thinking maybe they'll not come. Hoping they'll say no. <laughs> but that's not the way she was. God had blessed this woman. He had blessed her with wealth. He blessed her with property. He had blessed them with land. And, and she, she, she wanted to give back something to the Lord. And, and this was the way that she was going to do it. And what did they do? So she's, she talked to her husband. We'll look at that in a moment. She talked to her husband and, and they built a little chamber, an annex outside their dwelling for this man to come in when he was coming to and fro. And so that he could come in, there was a bed in it for rest. You'll read it there in those scriptures in verse 10. There was a bed in it for rest, there was a table for food, and there was a stool for prayer, and there was a candlestick for light. What more did he want? Old Dick Shaw used to pray here in the prayer meeting, thank God for a pillow under my head and a roof over it. What more did he want? He didn't want anything more. He was so content, you'll see in a minute, with what he had. And so was she. Boy, it's good to be content. Good to be content. Just, just a little chamber. A little chamber. Do you know whenever Nehemiah was building the walls, I think so in, in the 8th chapter, I didn't have time to look it up, in the 8th chapter, you know there are 38 names mentioned. And it says that these family worked next to their house, next to their house. They built next to their house, next to their house. But when it comes to a man the name of Meshullam, Meshullam, it doesn't seem, to, doesn't seem to have any family. He's the only one that says chamber. Meshullam had a wee chamber. Do you know where the chamber was? It was at the east gate. Of course, the eastern gate's closed tonight, but that's the gate that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be open when he comes back. It's the beautiful gate of the temple, the eastern gate. I tell you, I could get a sermon there very quick. Oh, he just had a wee chamber, just a wee modest dwelling at the eastern gate, looking, waiting towards the coming of the Lord. Hallelujah. There'll be no trouble with his land and houses. There'll be no family fighting over what Michelin has when the Lord comes. He's not wasting his days and his time making money to give it to somebody else. No, no. Just a wee chamber. That's all, that's all this man wanted. And when he got this wee chamber, he wanted to reciprocate. He, he wanted to do something for this woman. Look at verse 12. And he said to Gehazi's servant, Call the Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said unto, unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell amongst my own people. I tell you, that Elisha had some clout with the king. Do you know why? Because of the chapter before that, 
He had the power to destroy the Moabites. Remember the, the, the dug the ditches? And the captain of the host. This man could have got whatever he wanted. And he says to her, I'll speak to you to the king. And I'll get you whatever you want. Jesus, I don't want anything. I, I, love, I love the answer. I love this woman's answer. I'll tell you in verse 13. She said, she answered, I dwell among mine own people. You know what that means? You follow that up. I am very content amongst my own people. I'm very content amongst my own people. You know, godliness with contentment is great gain. She was so content with what she had, and she hadn't a child at this stage. Now listen to me. And there was no stigma greater for a Hebrew woman. There was nothing they desired more. All they wanted to do now is kill them. But there was nothing she desired more there was nothing in the heart. It was, it was like a, an affliction from God when a Hebrew woman hadn't a child. We don't understand that here in this culture. But even without that, she was contented. Oh boy, she was a woman of faith. She was a great woman of hospitality. She, you'll see she was a great woman of gentleness and kindness and faith and love. What a woman! She was. She was so content. This wasn't a woman who flit from one place to another, run from one meeting to another. She was just at home where she was with her own people. And she was content like Moses in the backside of the wilderness to dwell there. She was knowledgeable. I think she was great because she was knowledgeable. I think she was great because she was hospitable. And I think she was great because she was respectable. Because whenever he called her in verse 15, look at verse 15. And he said, and he, and he said call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door. Not inside the door. Not outside the door. But in the door. Remember, it was her chamber now. She owned it. But she had respect for the privacy of this man. And let me say something else. She didn't parade herself in before these two men trying to get attention. Some of you women would need to learn something from this. She's not looking to be seen. She's not dressed to be seen. I wonder sometimes what motives, certain motives are of those who come into the meeting and parade themselves. I wonder sometimes what their motives in their heart is. But I can't answer that. Let's go again here. There's something else very important here. She was submissible to her husband. She never done one thing that she didn't tell him or involve him. 
Now watch this. Although she was a lot older, that's the reason that she had no child. Verse 14, Gehazi said that. He said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, barely she has no child and her husband is old. He was a lot, a lot, a lot older. And this was why she had no child, but she was still contented. Now look at verse 9. And she said unto her husband, Behold now I perceive that this is a holy man of God which passes by us continually. Now watch this. Which passes by us. The both of them there. Verse 10. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall. Let us Set for him there a bed, a table, stool, and a candlestick, and it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in heather. I pray, she said, will you give me permission to do this? Are you agreed with this? Are we both on the same wavelength here with this? I tell you, that's very, very important. What splits, what rows could have been avoided in families and in homes if people were transparent one with another, especially men and wives? You do your own thing, do you? I went to a certain place one day and I met the wife. I said, how's your husband? She says, he's in there. <laughs> he's in there and he's like the devil. And then she told me why he was like the devil. And I went in to talk to him. If you'd asked me what he was like, I'd say there was ten devils in him. That wasn't for my ears. Wasn't for my ears. How is it with your wife, your husband? You just ignore him. Or ignore her? Well, we need to get back to the various vows again. A lot of strife and a lot of trouble comes here. I haven't one word to say against this man right throughout this whole situation. And if I had, I would. And he gets a lot of criticism, but not from me. Knowledgeable, she was hospitable, she was respectable, she was submissible, she was appreciable. Look at verse 16. And he said, About this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, Nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid. 
Now, she's not criticizing. What she actually means here is this, with amazement, just as you and I were saying, are you joking? Are you fooling me? How can this be? How on earth could this be? It's impossible. She was appreciable of what he was going to do for her, and she believed it, even though she did remonstrate. In verse 17, And the woman conceived and bare a son at that season, that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. Now, fast forward four to five years, and you're going to have to fast forward the next Wednesday night, for I'm going to stop in a minute. Fast forward four or five years, because I believe, as well as others, and I've studied it for myself, I believe that this boy was now four or five years of age. And what we have now is minimum words with a maximum woe. Let's open it up for you. And when the child was growing, when the child was growing, not growing up, Watch it what it says. And when the child was growing, that he went out to the father, to the reapers. He went out himself. I would reckon that he's about four or five. He didn't come back himself, mind you. He was carried back. He, he went out himself. And I'm sure he went out and he watched what was going on and I'm sure that he was playing out in the field and he was better doing that than sitting in his bedroom like some of the youngsters at four, five, six, seven, eight and ten fiddling at an old iPad. And mother's letting him. He was better out in the morning in a good fresh day out in the harvest field. This was harvest time. I think he was about four or five because she nursed him. Read on, well, it's there for yourself. And he said unto his father, my head, my head, and he knew where his head was. And he said to a lad, carry him to his mother. I don't blame him one bit for the whole attacks that this man has got. For why didn't he bring how, how did he know a busy man? He didn't know when the child was going to die. Do you not think he would have went with the child? Then your four-year-old can tell lies too. And they can exaggerate. And when he left the field, there mightn't have been very much wrong with him, so I'm not attacking this man at all. My head, my head, he said, and he said to a lad, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then days. He dandled her on her knees. So she mustn't have been, and then he carried her up to the loft. So she mustn't have been too old. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him, and went out. And went out. 
She's in the sieve now. And the devil's at one end of it and the Lord's at the other end of it. There's some rattling match now. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where Psalm 101 and verse 1 stays in, I will sing in mercy and in judgment. It's all right singing when you're in the harvest field. And remember the harvest field speaks of busyness and the harvest field speaks of joyfulness. Here's a young boy. Now whether he removed his head covering or his cap and the sun hit him, I don't know. Neither do you know. There's a four or five year old not do what they're told all the time. But I don't think it was sunstruck because the sun wasn't high, full height at this time. It, he died it when it was full height at noon. Maybe a hammer, I don't know. But he knew that there was something wrong with him and the father knew he'd take him to his mother. Now, the harvest field speaks of busyness and of joyfulness. Well, I tell you, the business can be stopped very quick. And the joy can dry up very quick. This is reality now. This is, a, this is a, as Nicholson used to say, this is a pig with another snout. This has changed the day. Aye, and many's a day. Now, come back next week. How did you deal with it? How should you deal with this sifting? Did you panic and run for others? No. Did you start to pray? No, she was already praying. There's no use in running out of prayer. If you're not in the prayer, then we're running to God now. I know he'll be there and I know he'll answer you and I know he'll help you. You can't build up a prayer in a half an hour. Will she panic? Will she run to others? Will she curse God? No. Did she prepare him for burial for they did that on the same day? No. Did she blame her husband? No. You'll see next week what she did. 16 miles she travelled on the back of an ass for five or six hours across the desert of Jezreel with her son dead in the in, in the closet in the prophet's chamber and she said it is well. It is well. It is well. Is any wonder she's in Hebrews 11? Let us pray.
Father, bless thy word. Bless thy word, Lord, it's your word. May we learn from this, may we feed on this, may we emulate this, Lord, in our lives. And I thank you, Lord, for those good, great women that are all around us, indeed, who stand their ground, who believe God in the midst of battles and afflictions and trials. Lord, we realize that the day can turn very quickly. We thank you for the day that we are blessed But we are enriched in all things. We pray and thank you for those tonight who have lived through this, Lord, and know what we're talking about. But, oh God, we pray that you will show us something more from thyself. As we wait on in thee and as we go to prayer for those children that are dead in trespass and in sin, oh God, he or she that liveth in pleasure is dead while they live dead. God help us and only God can raise the dead. And Father we bless thee that you raise dead sinners snap their bondage on their fetters and set them free. Pray in Jesus name that you'll remember us as we wait on in prayer for Christ's sake.